This idea of deadly sins, um, I think, is, is, is one that has, I, well, it's one we're familiar with for the most part, uh, especially in Western civilization. You know, in Christendom, it, 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 uh, I think it first showed up in 500, 600 AD in the early church fathers. I, I can't remember the, the exact date, but the idea was it was to communicate not necessarily the entirety of sin and just these seven sins, but, but to help us understand and, and even to maybe identify the root of some of the sins that are, are apparent or evident in our lives that, that we might struggle with. And through this kind of identification, maybe give us some tools and some abilities and some, some potential help in actually addressing them and dealing with them and, and develop my life or to allow my life to be developed uh, into a reflection of Jesus. And I think that this is done through breaking habits and making habits. And, and the reality is that <laughs> habits are, well, they're awful to try and break. I heard a statistic, I don't know if it's true or not, but it, it seems reasonable that, that it takes about two weeks for a habit to form. And if you only do it for those two weeks, it will take about two months to quit it. So that's, a, that's an interesting ratio. So if you have a habit for, you know, two years then it might take you 20 to kick it. Now we know and we celebrate the fact that we have a God who can overcome these things, that he can break bondage, that he can, he can set us free from these kinds of things. But uh, what I have found in my own experience is that my deliverance has not always been instantaneous for some of these kinds of habits. And for me, pride is definitely one of these. The classroom of the Christian curriculum, I believe, wholeheartedly, is in a small group. Honestly, I believe this. That, that as much as coming together on a Sunday morning and worshiping together, being spoken to by the word of God and being able to raise up our voices in praise and worship, this is an amazing thing, but it doesn't change our habits. And interestingly enough, it is often the place where we... Um, we put on our masks because, well, we want to look presentable and be appropriate and, and be acceptable to God. And the reality is if I consider each day of my week and if I look at my thoughts and my actions and my motives, maybe there's some things there that I, I need to ask forgiveness for because I'm, I'm maybe not as presentable as I'm presenting myself to be. This, uh, this message this morning, I'm drawing from a, um, a really great resource that I found in my experience. It's, uh, it's called the, it comes out of a series called The Natural Church Development. It was put together by a guy named uh, Christian Swartz, who, who essentially started taking surveys of churches and asking them about, you know, trying to discover what is it that makes a healthy church. And so out of gathering data from I think he's, uh, when the, the, the print of the book says they were up to 65,000 different churches, uh, trends start to become apparent. And, and the interesting thing about these trends is that what he found was there was biblical uh, correspondence to these trends. That actually the things that they were finding in the research that they were doing through these surveys was that it was consistent with what the Bible had to say about what community should look like. And so he's developed uh, uh, several uh, books using this information to help Christians build habits that reflect Jesus and, and a community of Jesus. 
The way in which that uh, uh, Swartz actually kind of addresses sin in the book, I find to be an interesting one. And, and it's something that I, I sort of gleaned out of what he was saying. He didn't necessarily say this himself, but, but sin is, in a very real sense, a misappropriation or a misuse of what God has given us. And, and in, this, in this question of pride, okay, uh, the way that I think that this is evident is that, that, that God has given us power. And pride is a misuse and misappropriation of that. In, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, it says that God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. See, it was always part of God's good plan that, that we would rule with him over creation. That we would participate in the act of creation. And this was what God wanted for us, to do with us. And, and we know in, in Genesis that to essentially to allow fall, there's this moment where God has given Adam and Eve the choice to, to essentially to allow God to define their lives or for them to define their lives. And, and they, they make the fateful choice to, to define their lives, define what is good and evil for themselves. And in a very real sense, uh, I would say almost a prideful kind of choice that they make. So how do we deal with sin? How do we deal with it? I think we have two uh, ways that we typically try to deal with sin. And the first way, and, and, and it seems to be typically the first uh, choice that we make when we're saying, okay, there's this sin in my life. I recognize this brokenness and this bad habit that I continue to come back to. All right, what I need to do is stop it. That we just deny it. That we just say that, you know what, I, I, I just, I, I can't do this anymore. And it doesn't matter what it is. Maybe it's gossip. Maybe it's, it's something like pornography. Maybe it's something like, like eating too much. Or maybe it's, it's about the way in which that you view yourself or the way in which that you view other people. And you have this tendency to just tell yourself, well, just, just don't do it anymore. And the problem with this kind of approach to dealing with sin is that it doesn't acknowledge the fact that there is this energy, this power that has been put into us. God gave this command to Adam and Eve to, to, to be fruitful, to multiply, to, to subdue the earth. And, and within us is that same command. As image bearers of God, we, we, we create we, we, we seek to be over, to overseers. You have to go somewhere with that. And, 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 and so Swartz, he actually connects each one of the seven deadly sins with this, with this power that God has given us, this energy that he has placed within us. And, and that each of us, typically, we have these kinds of energies or passions or proclivities that seem to manifest more often in ourselves, maybe than someone else. And so it leads us to this place, well, well, you know what? I don't deal with gluttony. I'm much better than that. Guess what? You deal with pride. The other mistake that we often make, I think, is far more uh, dangerous, and especially for the church. Rather than denying Rather than saying that this energy inside of us, we just need to ignore it, it, it compromises. It starts to identify the, the, 
the sin that is resulting from a misuse of that energy as being not that bad or, or even being positive. Compromise is something that we talk a lot about in church. And I think that we can make really inappropriate ones. And yet there's something about what Jesus tells us in, in the teachings of Paul also where he says that, that you need to be all things to all people. And so there's something about compromise that is important. But when it comes to sin, we can't compromise. So now what do we do? What do we do? Because we can't deny the energy that is within us. But if we, if we live it out in a human way, well, it's only going to lead us to sin. See, because the reality is that we were given a gift by God to be used in the way that God wanted us to use it. And so it requires us to be in relationship with him so that we can take what he has given us and utilize it in a way that he has called us to use it. And when we do that, it actually glorifies God. That it actually builds up his church, and his kingdom. And this is why I think this is a great series to be talking about as we consider what it means to be in small groups. Because in my understanding, in my thinking, it's in the small group that we actually can build up our church. The individuals can actually find themselves in a place with the accountability and the encouragement and the prayer support where their lives can be changed habit by habit. And they don't need to do it alone. Because the reality is, if you've sat in church or if you sat on the bus, it doesn't matter if you're amongst a bunch of people. It can be very lonely. It's hard to be lonely in a small group because people are asking you direct questions. They're looking you in the eye and saying, how are you? And you can't just say, well, I, I got to go. I got to go for lunch. I think about the path of denial and, and, and a biblical character that comes to mind for me is Moses. You know, he goes through his whole episode of trying to do things his way, and he's off in the wilderness, and God gets a hold of him again after he's been shepherding. And, and God says, look, I want you to go and lead my people out of the Egypt. And what does Moses say? I can't. I'm not good at speaking. Yeah, Moses was the one who had been trained to speak with oratory and given all the, the training of a, of a pharaoh. He was exactly the guy to go and do that. And, and the, the, the characters I want to look at today, um, I, I find them to be an interesting people or example of compromise. There's James and John. And there's this episode, I think, that really kind of crystallizes the pride that they exhibit. Uh, it's in Luke chapter 9. Uh, we'll go to there after. But it's when they pray and ask Jesus, um, let's fireball that village. So what is pride? There's a story I heard um, about a CEO of a Fortune 500 company. Him and his wife were out for a nice drive uh, in the back rows, and, and they pulled over at a gas station, and they filled up with gas. And he went in to pay, and he came out, and his wife was there talking to the attendant. And uh, he just kind of smiled to himself because he remembered, actually, he actually recognized the attendant. His wife had used to date that guy. So he's feeling very good about himself. He gets into the car, drives off. And in silence, he's sitting there thinking about what's going on uh, or has what, what has just transpired. And he, is that me or is that someone else? Is, it is me. I'm sorry. Ah. Okay. What's that? You need more 
I guess. <laughs> Just cracking up over here. Uh, So the CEO gets into this car and he drives away and he's sitting in silence, feeling the smugness and whatnot. He kind of looks over his wife and he says, you must be thinking right now how lucky you are to have married me. <laughs> and she, without missing a beat, turns and replies to him, no, actually I was thinking that if I had married him instead of you, he'd be the Fortune 500 CEO and you'd be the gas attendant. There is a saying, behind every great man stands a woman, and uh, I, there is a wisdom in that. What is pride? In a small way, it's, it's like confidence in oneself, isn't it? That's not necessarily a bad thing. But pride in oneself, confidence, uh, it's often seen as this necessary component to effective functioning in the world, but that's also very worldly kind of wisdom. See, pride implies that the self is autonomous. It needs no other people. It needs not God. It strives to take his place. It is a gross overestimation of our significance. Pride encourages us to rework reality in our own image. And, and, and as you think about that, the story of Adam and Eve in the, in the Garden of Eden really does come to mind. Don't eat from this tree of the fruit with the knowledge of good and evil. Interestingly enough, sin or, or pride is the sin of the virtuous. There's this joke that I like to make on a regular basis where I, I tell people, I'm the most humble person. I think pride is one of those sins that um, finds good soil in a church. Because as we view our goodness, our good works, our piety, that it's easy to consider that that's a reflection of us, actually. And as we look at how often we read our Bibles and consider the person next to us who I'm not even sure they own one, we have now committed this sin of pride. And, and interestingly enough, I, I was first faced with this idea of pride in, in, in reading Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. He has a whole chapter on it. I, I believe it's chapter 9, actually. And, and I remember being struck with this because he says that one of the best ways to understand whether or not you have pride is whether or not you find pride in other people. Because the reality of pride is, is your assumption of your, your, your greatness. And if someone else thinks that they're great, well, now there's a competition between you two. And, and it's very easy to say, well, you just think you're so great because you're prideful. Not like me, of course. I'm not like that at all. And, and so it was interesting as I was researching this, I found... Uh, uh, a site that talked about seven subtle signs of pride. And, and as I read the title, I thought it is interesting that it's subtle in me. It's not so subtle to me about these signs of pride in other people. Let me, let me read them off for you and, and, and consider, does the church look like that? Fault finding. A harsh spirit. Superficiality. 
defensiveness, presumption before God, desperation for attention, and neglecting others. I read that list and I consider my own church life and and it's hard not to see myself in that description. Uh, Historically, pride within the seven deadly sins is considered the father of the the sins. And, And when you read these, I think it's easy to understand how that could be the case. That there is an element of pride in each sin Interestingly enough, the other deadly sins are all uh, acts that seem to be running away from God, and yet pride is the one sin that actually seems to affront God. So what does this look like in Scripture? Well, as I alluded to earlier, there's a passage in Luke 9, 51 to 56. It says, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. He sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. When his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them and went on to another village. Now, if you didn't know anything else about James and John and you just kind of showed up in that moment and you overheard that conversation, what kind of people would you think of James and John? In one statement, can you see any of those subtle signs of pride? Fault-finding, harsh spirit, desperation for attention, and presumption before God. How quick are we to pass judgment and condemnation and forget the injustices and sins that are in our own lives that deserve that same kind of treatment? The actual passage I'd like us to to look at and maybe spend a little time is found in Mark chapter 10, uh, verse 35 to, to 45. Again, it's about James and John, and, and, and it's still in this kind of scene where Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. Uh, in, the, in the Gospel of, of Matthew, uh, this same scene is actually, it's not James and John who come to Jesus, but it's their mother. It says in verse 35, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want, to do, we want you to do for us whatever we ask you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. just want to stop there for a second. That, that, it's not hard to see how the, the pridefulness of this kind of statement that these guys come to Jesus with. How audacious of them to ask something so presumptuous. We want you to do for us whatever we want. How could James and John say something like that? How is it any different from the way that we talk to God, though? God, I need. God, I want. God, remove from my life. How do we know that God hasn't placed those things or not allowed those things for a very specific reason? And yet we say to God, could you just do what I ask you to? And if you do that, God, well, then I'll obey you. (laughs) And I love Jesus' response. 
It's not the same as when James and John were like, hey, let's fireball the village. You know, Jesus, I can only imagine that moment. He's just like, idiots. <laughs> Jesus' response in this passage is, what do you want me to do for you? Not no. Like if my kid came up to me and said, dad, look, I want you to do whatever I ask. <laughs> okay, no. <laughs> you can go right to your room. How's that sound? And Jesus' response is, what do you want me to do for you? Because here's an interesting thing about who God is, is that he actually wants to do things for us. But he, what he wants us to do is to ask him for the things that are of his heart and of his will. And so in this moment, in this space, I think there's actually a small window that, that James and John might actually receive whatever it is they're asking, as long as it is that their heart lines up with the heart of God. But that's not the way this little parable goes. Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Look, let us be your right hand and left hand man. We want to stand right beside you. We want everyone, when they look at you, Jesus, they're going to see us too. Okay? Because we're with you. We got your back. So um, uh, why why don't you just put us there? Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. There was a scene with Jesus, with a person on his left and on his right. But it wasn't a scene that I think James and John were excited to participate in. Jesus asks them, are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. We're able. Again, I bring up that scene on Calvary when Jesus is crucified and he has someone on his left and right. They don't know what they're even saying to Jesus. But look, Jesus, we'll do whatever it takes to to get that kind of recognition. We can. We're able. We're capable. We won't fall. We won't stumble. We'll make it to the end. Look, if anyone betrays you and everyone turns against you, we will stand with you no matter what. Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit on my right hand or my left is not mine to grant. It is for those whom it has been prepared. Even Jesus submits. Even Jesus recognizes that I'm not doing this necessarily of my own will. That I'm following someone else. I'm following the orders and directives of God the Father. In the last few verses, there's, there's a quick scene in 41, and then there's Jesus' response to how we deal with pride. Verse 41, it says, when the 10 heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. See, one of the issues with the the deadly sin of pride is that it doesn't just, it doesn't just put me in the, in the, in the path of the wrath of God, but that it actually, it, it begins to break down and eliminate my relationship with the people around me. That pride is the antithesis of community. That if I am in power, we actually, there's something between us now. And and that's fairly inescapable. It's fairly inescapable. 
And, and the reality is, whenever you get two people into a room, you will have someone who will try to typically exert themselves over the other. I don't know about you, but when someone treats me like that, I don't take it very well. I'm a very competitive person. I like to think, you know what? I think I can do this better than you can. The response of the other ten disciples is pretty typical. They become indignant with James and John. What makes you think that you're better than us? We've been with Jesus just as long as you. We don't understand him any better than you do. Why do you get to sit at his right hand and left? Because you're brothers and you like the symmetry? That doesn't make sense. Jesus called to them and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. I'm sure we've all experienced this, whether it's at work, whether it's at school, whether it's in our own home, family gatherings, whether it's just some random meeting that you have with a stranger on the street there's people who think that they're better than you and, and they often can put you in a position where they prove it or where they control you or try to control you. But Jesus says, it shall not be so among you. That the power that was given to you by God, the way in which that he intended you to be, it's not supposed to look like this. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. That, that, that greatness, that power is redefined by Jesus as not as your ability to overcome, to oversee, to overpower, but actually in your ability to serve others, to lift others up. Whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Now, this is not the passage that I want you to take to the board of elders and be like, see, let's go. Because it's a passage that speaks to you as well. And Jesus closes and says, for, every, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and gave his life as a ransom for many. I can't help but think of that scene in, uh, in, in John, in chapter 13, where Jesus washes the feet of his servants. Talking about pride, especially from the pulpit, typically preachers will always go to the great example of Jesus' humility. We all know where that is in the Bible, right? Yep. <laughs> Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 11. Paul tells him, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That the, that the opposite of pride is humility. And the greatest example of humility is the fact that Jesus, who was above everything in the form of God, emptied himself. He didn't, he didn't grasp that equality, but lowered himself to the place of being a human, a babe, helpless. 
and even more than that, allowed himself as God of the universe, the creator of all things, to be murdered on a cross in a despicable fashion, scorned and made fun of. The passage goes on and says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, and in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This example of humility that we are shown in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is not just this thing where we go like, okay, like that's really awesome and, and that's what I need to be. Because it's not just an example for us in that it's what we need to do, but in that moment, what Jesus did was he actually empowered us. See, this idea of, of, of pride is that we have within us this energy towards power, to oversee, to, to, to control. And God, who could do that with, without any trouble at all, gives us an example where he takes his power and he lifts us up. And the thing is that our ability to do that is not found necessarily just within ourselves because, you know what, it's hard to lift people up. And I'm not just talking about the fact that I could stand to lose a few pounds. The fact of the matter is, is that when you get to know someone, they don't deserve to be lifted up. You don't want to do that. But you see, the example is that Jesus did it for you first. And it's as we understand the gospel, it's as we grasp the, the, the weight and the, the height and the depth of what Jesus has done for us, that it allows us to take what God has given us and to invest it into those around us. Humility and pride are the result of the same kind of energy. The difference between the two is how you invest that energy. Pride is invested in me, in myself. Humility means when I invest in those around me. Not for what they can give to me. Right? Because how easy is that? It's just like, look at what I'm doing for everybody. Yeah, but we all think you're the best. True humility. True humility cannot be tapped into unless we're drawing from Christ. Unless we're drawing from what Jesus has done for us, it will be impossible for, to be truly humble. We can't treat others the way God calls us to treat us unless we understand how God has first treated us. To love others as God has loved us requires that love of God. One of the greatest distinctions between church and the world is that the church is defined in service. And not the kind of service where we just do things for one another, but the kind of service where we love people with a godly love. And that kind of love is the kind of love that says, I want your perfection. And I'm willing to walk with you. I'm willing to serve with you. I'm willing to do what needs to be done to help you achieve that. Because that is what Jesus has done for me. We need to strive towards this and to be careful not to measure it, which is a, a weird tension to try and hold to. The reality is we need to be in a kind of community where we can be honest, open about our failings and shortcomings. 
where we can honestly invite people to participate in them as we strive to be what God has called us to be. Because if we try to do it alone, we will quickly find that we are insufficient for that task. God has provided for us. So I ask that you and I challenge you to consider what are the subtle signs in your own life? Is pride something that God wants to deal with in your heart? If you find that there's a lot of prideful people around you, this might be an indication. Uh, This weekend, I know it's something (laughs) that I find in my own life. Uh, This weekend was going to be a very busy weekend, and and Pastor Mario said, you know, Pastor Ryan, why why don't you let me preach? And I thought, no, no, I got this. (laughs) And all I've done all week is tell everyone, look, I'm going to be doing all these things. No big deal. I've got it. And last night, I was saying this to someone, and God was just like, you prideful. You prideful son. I'm not perfect. I need to be in a small group where people can tell me that I'm not perfect, but can help me find it. Find it in Christ and find it in each other. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you for... I thank you so much that you sent Jesus to lift me up out of the depravity of my sin. That you love me despite all of that. I thank you, God, that you send me brothers and sisters to stand around me that, that do the same thing for me. God, I pray and ask that you would help me offer myself up for those around me as you have called me to do. Lord God, I pray and ask that you would use hearts who serve to build up the community here at Fairview Alliance Church. That those around us would be so touched and impacted by what they see here, what they feel here, that they would be transformed by it and participate in it. Lord God, only you can accomplish this. And we thank you for what you have done and what you will do. And we give all the praise and glory to your name, Jesus. Amen.